Uh, well, good morning, friends. Welcome to Jacksonville Press. My name is Dustin. If we haven't met, I get to be the lead pastor here. At this time, I'm going to invite you for the standing of the reading of God's Word. And as we stand, I'm going to invite all the kids out this side door with Miss Joy for our kids program. If you're with us, you know that we're in the book of 1 Samuel this week. We're going through the Old Testament book by book, one week at a time. Uh, Last week, we looked at the book of Ruth, and we learned from the exemplars of uh, Naomi and Ruth and Boaz, and I hope you were encouraged by that. Uh, This morning, we're going to be looking at 1 Samuel chapter 8. So if you've got your print Bible, thank you for bringing your print Bible to church. And if you're watching online, welcome. We miss you. Hopefully, you have your Bible out as well. And we're looking at 1 Samuel chapter 8. But before we read, I just want to say, you know, like my favorite thing about our church is that we want the word of God. And I cannot commend you enough for that. I'm so thankful that so many of you bring your Bibles. Uh, that makes me really proud of you. And I hope it's a, it's a pride in a godly way, if you know what I mean. And I'm proud that this church wants God's word and is willing to stand by its truth. Um, we live in chaotic days, uh, but the word of God is not far off. It speaks to today. And I'm just, I just want to commend you for that. So with that in mind, let's read God's word right now as the inerrant and holy guide for our lives that it is. 1 Samuel chapter 8 says this, Christian, hear the word of the Lord. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba, yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramon, said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice only. You shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. Now, friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will endure forever. This is the word of the King. Amen. Would you be seated and let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would give us right now uh, the mind of Christ to discern what your word has to say. Father, would we hear the voice of our King and would we follow him? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So how are we supposed to live in chaotic times? You feel like we're living in chaotic times? Uh, where what is good is called evil and what is evil is called good. You know, how are we supposed to live in a day when injustice reigns? Uh, That's very much the question on a lot of our minds, and it's a question that permeates really the whole Bible, especially the Old Testament. Uh, One of my favorite Old Testament prophets, Isaiah, said it this way in Isaiah 5. He says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness instead of light. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant in mixing strong drinks. Woe to those who acquit the guilty in order to take a bribe. And woe to those who deprive the innocent of their rights. 
How are we supposed to live in chaotic times where what is evil is called good and what is good is called evil? Well, the good news that I have to share with you and what I want to commend you to continue to believe is that the word of God speaks to today. Uh, this comes from Deuteronomy chapter 30, uh, which if you've been reading through the co-op, I think you may have read this already. Uh, but in Deuteronomy 30, Moses is pleading with the people to believe that God's word still speaks. And listen to what Moses says. He says, the Lord your God will delight in you if you obey his voice and keep his commandments and decrees written in this book. And if you turn to the Lord with all of your heart and soul. And this command that I am giving you today is not too difficult for you. And it is not beyond your reach. No, the message is at hand. It is on your lips and in your heart so that you can obey it. <laughs> Moses' encouragement to the people in chaotic times Right? In, the, in the times when everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes, is that God's word is clear. It's not far away. It's applicable to our lives, and it's within reach. And so what I want to suggest to you today is that's what we're going to try to see when we look at 1 Samuel, is that what it has to say to us speaks to our times, and it is within reach if you have ears to hear, and if your heart is not like a hard sponge. <laughs> Remember the sponge I used a few weeks ago? Is your heart softened and alive by the Spirit of God? Because if it is, it can soak in all of the water of God's truth. So look with me at 1 Samuel. You know, what's going on in 1 Samuel? Well, let me just give you sort of the brief overview. Uh, so we've left the time of the judges, and really we get are introduced to this prophet named Samuel, uh, who in you know, 1 Samuel chapter 7 and 8, uh, we learn that he is sort of the last judge. He's the last of the judges of Israel. And now 1 Samuel is ushering us into the kingdom. Now we finally get a king for the land of Israel. And of course, Deuteronomy, and I think Deuteronomy 16, tells the people they can have a king, but it warns them about what the king should do. And so we have this sense that the people are eventually going to get a king, but in Samuel, what we find sort of the hinge point in the book of Samuel is the people demand a king, not because they are necessarily concerned with following God's word and living righteously. They want a king, but why do they want a king? What do they want to be like? They want to be like the rest of the world. They want to be like the nations. Uh, isn't that interesting that God's people's temptation in Samuel is they want to be like the world around them? I mean, how many Christians today, how many of us struggle with holding the truth of God's word because we just want to be like the world around us and be accepted by them? That same pull, right, to go back to Egypt is the same pull in Samuel to be like the nations, and it's the same pull today for us as Christians to reflect our culture and not Christ. It's the same issue, which is why God's word speaks to today. And so they demand a king, not because they're really concerned about rightly applying Deuteronomy. They want a king because they want to be like all the other nations, right? And so, of course, uh, the, the surprise in the story is Samuel listens to them, and then he goes and he prays. And then God's response is, give them what they want. Only warn them that if they get what they want, it's not going to go like they think. And that's exactly what we see because the first king, if you read the book of Samuel, is a guy named Saul. And his kingdom tragically ends, and then God raises a king who is not after the people's choosing, it's after his choosing. And Saul and David could not be more different. 
right? So that's basically the book of 1 Samuel. So next week, Pastor Richard is going to be doing an overview of 2 Samuel and really taking it from the perspective of King David. What are we supposed to learn from the life of David? Today, I thought it would be helpful for me then to focus on Samuel and Saul, if that makes sense, because next week we'll get to David. But in the original Hebrew Bible, Samuel is all one big book. Sam, you know, First and Second Samuel, it's really just one book, right? So it's one continuous story. Today, we're going to look at Saul and Samuel, and then next week, we'll look at David. So look with me right there at 1 Samuel uh, chapter 8, right? So what are we supposed to learn about Samuel? Well, look at verse 8, verse 1. It says, when Samuel became old, uh, for the record, he's only about 60. So, <laughs> and that's sad. Isn't that alarming? He's only about 60, but okay, but here's, there's a great meme. I should have shown it, but there's this picture of like a 95-year-old really wrinkly face guy, and it says at the top, have you seen the meme? It says, who says pastoring is difficult. I'm 35 and feeling great. <laughs> you know, there's this sense that the people have worn Samuel out. That's the point, right? Not that 60 is old. The point is, is that Samuel's really worn out, right? He's been judging the people and he's not as old as we would think is old, but he's clearly, they've worn him out, right? And then of course, what happens with Samuel, although Samuel is an incredibly godly man, incredibly godly, um, loves the people as we will see, there is a problem in Samuel's house, says right there in verse 1, when Samuel, this great prophet, the last of the judges, whose heart was for the Lord, when Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. Which is very interesting because God did not raise up judges who were just the offspring of their own kids. Judges were by God's choosing. It was not a dynasty. Judges were selected by God's own choosing, not by people saying, well, my kids should take over. Interesting, right? And we get their names, Joel and Abijah, and they were judges. But what's the real problem with these two sons raised in a household of faith? Look at verse 3. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. So what are we supposed to see in this brief passage from Samuel? Well, uh, I think any parent... Uh, with children, regardless of what age your kids are, should take pause and just reflect on these verses for just a second. You know, what is it that we are instilling in our kids, right? The importance of raising our kids in the faith cannot be overstated. Uh, a few weeks ago, if you remember, I preached on Deuteronomy. And in Deuteronomy, I preached on Deuteronomy chapter 6. And I talked about a passage called the Shema, which is the most famous verse in the Old Testament especially in Deuteronomy, and it says these words, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. Right, The very most important passage, the very first thing they say is not only are we called to love God, we're supposed to teach our children about who God is. Right, So uh, you know, this is not just coming from Deuteronomy. There was a very, very famous study done by two professors. Uh, you may have heard of it. You can Google it. I would strongly encourage you to read it. It's something called the National Study for Youth and Religion. And it was uh, put on by a Notre Dame professor in a UNC Chapel Hill professor, and they studied uh, a couple thousand teenagers for several years through their adolescence, and they just wanted to study religion and teenage life, you know, children and religion, and they didn't limit it to, you know, Christianity, 
Although, you know, not surprisingly, evangelical Christians did the best job of passing on the faith to their kids of all religions. Uh, But what they found is the number one spiritual influence on children is what? Was it school? Was it Christian schooling or religious schooling? Was it their friends? Was it a charismatic youth pastor? Was it a hip pastor who wore skinny jeans? The number one spiritual influence on children is what? You all know it. It's their parents. It's whether or not their parents walk the walk and talk the talk. Right? The number one spiritual influence is the parent. Uh, Parents, you cannot um, secondhand the spiritual development of your kids. You can't. You are the primary disciplers. A church, we can equip you to do that better, and that's why we have people like Joy and Michelle and me. We can give you resources. We can exhort you. But at the end of the day, this is your highest calling. What are you doing with your life if it's not making sure your kids love the Lord? What's your household built on? I mean, this is so important. How, what, you know, what, what good is it if we raise very wealthy, very successful adults, but they don't know who Jesus is and the gospel doesn't grip them. I mean, this message and the importance of the message, it begins in, as in the very beginning of the Bible. Like this speaks to today. It speaks to today. Parents, do you realize that you are the primary spiritual influencers? If Deuteronomy 6 doesn't convince you, Do the professors at Notre Dame and UNC, can they convince you? You know, the other thing I want you to focus on, though, and I think um, what Samuel, 1 Samuel 8 is specifically showing us is although it's our responsibilities as parents to make sure our kids understand the gospel, can we guarantee outcomes? Can parents guarantee outcomes? No. You cannot guarantee outcomes. We cannot force anyone into the kingdom. The message we tell our children eventually, right, is when they grow up, which hopefully that's what we're doing, right? I mean, the Bible says our kids are like arrows in a quiver, right? You don't have arrows to keep them in a quiver. You have arrows to do what? (whistles) Shoot them off to college or, you know, to a career or to their spouse, right? They can go places, right? Hopefully we're equipping our kids to be influencers in this world and faithful to the gospel, Right? But right here we see that there's not an outcome that we can guarantee. I mean, even Samuel, you know, as Samuel, he, Samuel goes to the people, if you read in, in you know, in the, as you read the, keep reading the story, it's so fascinating because Samuel is like, okay, we're going to give you a king, but you guys are really dumb. You don't understand. You have all these extra taxes. He's going to take your sons. He's going to take your daughters. He's going to do all these things. And for the record, you should trust me on this one. And Samuel makes this plea. He says, have I ever bribed any of you? Have I ever lied to you? Have I ever defrauded you? And they're like, no, never. And then he goes, then why don't you listen to me? Don't have the king, right? Uh, but notice, even though Samuel is full of integrity and never you know, bribed anybody or did anything wrong, his sons, through their own volition and their own choosing, have to decide for themselves whether they're going to follow in the ways of their father or not. And they don't. They don't. Uh, so, Christian, if you have children who are not walking with the Lord, um, you know, this is an area to apply the goodness of God. Everybody has to make their own choice. 
Everybody has to choose for themselves whether they will bow to King Jesus or not. And as much as you can, Christian, we have to point our children to Christ. Right? But we cannot control outcomes. You know, but the heart of a, the heart of a believer, you know, sort of resonates uh, with uh, Third John. You know, in Third John, uh, John says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Now, I don't think John means his literal kids, but he means his kids in the faith. But I think that's the heart of a parent, right? The heart of a Christian parent, right, is there's no greater joy than knowing that our kids know who Jesus is, right? So, um, I won't, you know, that's plenty for you and your family to think about, right? And I think if you have tried to raise your kids in the faith and they've walked away, I think this, mess, this is a good message for you this morning, right? This is a hopeful message, right? Because Samuel was righteous. There's nothing in this passage that suggested Samuel didn't talk to his kids about faith. I mean, Samuel walked the walk and he talked the talk. And yet his kids walked away. So if that's where you are, you know, Christian, you know, apply the goodness of God to this. But if you aren't really adamant and sincere about talking to your kids about the faith, I would implore you and plead with you as much as I can to talk to your kids about who the Lord is. And, um, you know, maybe as a, as a frame of reference, think about it this way. Um, how committed are you to your kids excelling in school and excelling in sports, Right? Think of that to that non-negotiable level of you are going to do good in school. You are going to go on vacation and you're going to like it. <laughs> and you are going to do, you know, the sport. Are you that locked down on making sure that your kid gets the grace of God? That your kid gets the, it is a non-negotiable. And, you know, when we talk about raising our kids in the faith, I, I, I should, I, I, I'm sorry if this feels like I'm talking down to you because I'm really preaching to myself as much as to anybody. But I want to remind you, Christian, that there is a difference between teaching your kids right from wrong and teaching them the gospel of Jesus. Right? You can teach them, this is not how you talk to people. Right? This is what's right. Be above board. Don't take bribes. Don't cheat in school. You can teach them right from wrong, but that's not what the Bible's talking about primarily. What the Bible's talking about is are you teaching your kids to love God not just to obey him, but to love him. To love him. You could do a whole lot worse, friends, than to sit down with your kids or your teenagers and read through the Sermon on the Mount with your kids this week. What does Jesus mean when he says, blessed are the peacemakers? What does that mean? Guys, what do you think it means to be a peacemaker at your school? Blessed are those who are pure in heart. Guys, do you think our family has a pure heart? Judge not, lest you be judged. What do you think Jesus means by that? Right? Do you see the difference between rules and teaching them about Jesus? Right? You can teach them rules all day, and you may never get around to Jesus. But if you teach about Jesus, you end up getting all the rules, but for the right reasons, if you know what I mean. Samuel's kids didn't follow but I'm pretty sure Samuel taught his kids. Are you teaching your kids? All right, so let's go into verse four. So now, of course, because these unrighteous young men um, do not understand justice because they didn't take the faith for themselves, right? They didn't own it at the heart level. This creates a problem for all of God's people. And so the elders of Israel, they get together 
And they come to Samuel and they say, hey, behold, you're old. <laughs> what a great way to start a conversation with somebody. Hey, you're old. And your kids are terrible. Right? And you wonder why Samuel gets offended at them. Right? Behold, you are old and your sons don't walk in your ways. Here's the problem for God's people. So now they propose a solution. Now, appoint for us a king to judge us like all of the other nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king. Right, so notice right off the bat, I, just, I want you to notice the irony in what they're saying. They come to Samuel and they say, Samuel, you're great. Your kids, eh, not so great. So here's what the solution is. Instead of you know, going to the Lord and calling up different judges or implore, implore, implore the Lord and ask him what he thinks we should do, here's our solution. Let's set up a guy to be king, and then when he's dead, his sons can take over. And then his sons can take over. What's the problem right now? There is no direct link between the faith of a believer and their kids. They're saying, you know, what's, you know what the problem is, Samuel? You're trying to pass on the leadership to your kids. So let's pick a different guy who does the exact same thing. <laughs> who passes on the leadership to his kids, right? Very ironic that they ask for that. But that's not really the problem, right? The problem is that they want to be like all of the other nations, uh, which, is, which is incredible when you, when you factor in Deuteronomy 16, which tells God's people they can have a king, right? Even though they're told in Deuteronomy, you can have a king, here they demand a king, and yet they're, they're wrong for it, which means, believers, that you, one of the things that means is that you and I, we can want the right thing, but if our hearts are not truly with the Lord, it's actually wrong. We can want the, the right thing for the wrong motivation, right? What the Lord wants is not only for us to do the right thing, but to want to do it. And I'm sorry if you think that feels like, oh, oh God has such a high standard. I have to obey him. I have to want to obey him. But just think about it like this, you know, like if you, it's your anniversary and you're like, well, we have to go out to dinner, honey. Where do you want to go? And then she's like, well, is your heart in it? And you're like, what are you talking about? I'm doing it because you've commanded me to do it. What self-respecting woman would accept that kind of anniversary dinner? She would say, I don't want you just to do it to do it. Somebody's getting elbowed. This is preaching to somebody in the room. He wants you to, she wants you to do it and to want to do it. Right? And if a human wants that, how much more a holy God wants us to do what he says and to want to do it? to want to do it. Uh, if you read 1 Samuel this week, it's fascinating how many times people are described by the state of their heart. The first person we're introduced to in Samuel is a woman named Hannah, and she has a lot of tragedy in her life, but it says she prays to God from the heart. And then, of course, the people want a king, but not from the right heart. And then Saul is given a new heart when he is made king, and then, of course, David is chosen to be the real king because he has a heart after the Lord. And it was the heart of the Lord who chose him, right? I mean, you get the concept, Christian. Not only are we supposed to obey him, we're supposed to want to obey him. And friends, if you have the Holy Spirit in you right now, you know what you're thinking? You're thinking, yeah, I do. I want to do that. And if you don't want to do that, are you sure the Spirit's in you? Do you know God? Because if you do, you want to follow him. I think the second thing I want you to see 
When you look down at verses 4 and 5, the elders say they want this king. I'm trying to think how I want to say this. Look at verse 6. You know, they want a king, but the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. How does Samuel respond? Let's, let's pause and look at Samuel's heart for a second. What is Samuel's response? They come up and they say, give us a king. And Samuel's like, oh, Lord, have mercy. Like, literally, he means those, right? He doesn't mean that facetiously. He's like, God, help us. What is going on? But notice what his reaction is. Um, does he argue with them? You know, when, when people that he loves, the people of Israel, when they are on the wrong path, does he start an online rant against them? Does he get on Twitter and start condemning them, right? Does he try to use his own reason to convince them? What does Samuel do? Look at verse 6. The thing displeased Samuel when they said it, and Samuel did what? He turned to prayer. Isn't that interesting? Um, maybe another way of saying this, friends, is what are we supposed to do when the people that we love are going down the wrong path? What do you do? Sorry, what do you do when the people that you love are going down the wrong path? Do not lean on your own understanding. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes. What do we do when people start going down the wrong path? What's Samuel's gut reaction? It's prayer. It's prayer. You know, I was reading a commentary this week, and they said prayerlessness is one of the ultimate signs of pride because it reveals that we think we can solve our problems apart from the Lord. I mean, if you're worried about your kids or your, I don't know, parents or whomever, you know, are you leaning on your own understanding and arguing with them? Or are you like Samuel and do you turn to prayer? Are you turning to prayer? You know, I've, I've mentioned this story before, but it, it's one of those like epical, like five most important experiences in my life or something, you know, but I'll never forget, you know, my mentor. I had this big problem years ago, which in the grand scheme of things wasn't big, but it was big in the moment, which makes it big, if you know what I mean. And I remember going into his office, and I was like sweating. I'm so upset. I'm like, what am I going to do? And I was like, his name was, his name's Richard White, and he's like the most holy guy ever. And he goes, mm, mm, all the time to everything you say. It's so annoying. <laughs> and I went to Richard. Some of you got that. I do that a lot, apparently. Mm, mm. So I went to Richard, and I told him my problem. And he goes, you know what he does? What does he do? Mm, mm. He listens to my problem, and he goes, let's pray. And I go, why? <laughs> and he goes, because we need to pray about it. And I was like, okay. And I'm pretty sure I didn't close my eyes the whole time. I just looked at him. And I was like, what are you doing? Why are you praying right now? We have to solve this problem. And then he got done praying. And then he patted me on the knee and goes, okay, thank you. Get out. And I left and I was like, what was that? I thought he was going to help me with my problem. He just prayed with me. But of course, what was the breakthrough? That's exactly what I needed him to do. You know, sometimes I think we get so caught up in arguing with people and trying to convince them that sometimes the solution is to make this, you know, strange sort of spiritual pivot and just say, let's pray right now. This sounds really bad. Let's pray. You know, that's the kind of thing that Samuel does that makes him a righteous man, right? He turns to prayer. 
And of course, Samuel is really just embodying the very character of Jesus, right? The Lord himself. I mean, how many times in the Gospels does Jesus go off by himself and just pray? You know, before he chooses the disciples, you know, Luke 6 tells us he went up on a mountain and prayed all night. And then he came down and named the apostles. You know, one of the most human experiences or the most human stories of Jesus to me is in Matthew uh, 13, Mark 6. Uh, if, you read, if you read the co-op this, this week, you'll read it in Mark 6, I think on Thursday. Uh, but in Mark 6, Jesus has given really tragic news. John the Baptist has just been murdered. And what does Jesus do? You know how he responds? Where, where does Jesus do? He hears the news that John the Baptist is murdered. And he goes to a desolate place. And he prays. He turns to his disciples and says, we need to leave and pray. Right? This is that sort of spiritual turn that we've got to make as a body and as believers, right? Um, we're relying, I think, too much on our own understanding, and we're not relying enough on prayer. You know, what do you do when the people that you love are going astray? You know, are you praying for them? You know, um, Samuel keeps telling God's people they're making the wrong decision, but they don't heed the warnings. Um, it's kind of awkward almost because Samuel keeps bringing it up. You know, every time Samuel talks, he's like, but you shouldn't have asked for a king. And in his farewell address, this is 1 Samuel chapter 12, you know, he basically has finally said, you shouldn't have asked for a king, you shouldn't ask for a king. And finally, apparently, the people get the message, and they say, oh, well, pray for us. This is verse 19. They say, pray for us that we may not die because we've made this sin of asking for a king. And Samuel gives this, the most beautiful response. They say, we've messed up, pray for us. And Samuel reveals sort of his heart. And what he says is he says, Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord your God by ceasing to pray for you. You know, Samuel says, if I were to stop praying for you, I would be in sin. I will never stop praying for you. And he says, I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. There's that heart again. For consider what great things he has done for you. You know, Christians, as we face sort of chaotic days, um, it may just be that prayer is the thing that gets us out of this and not just our arguments. All right, let's keep going. So, uh, you know, this brings up, uh, you know, this interesting dilemma, right? So Samuel turns to prayer, and because he turns to prayer, God surprises him, right? Look at verse 7. And the Lord said to Samuel, smite the people. No, what does he say? Obey the people. That should be like, wait a second, say that one again. Wait, they want, the wrong, they want the right thing for the wrong reasons. They're demanding this thing, and yet the Lord's response is, okay, we'll give them what they want. Uh, you know, what I want you to just pause and reflect on then is apparently it's within the dynamic of the way that God interacts with you and me. Apparently part of our dynamic is that God can give us what we want. And if you are a Christian in the room, that should be like, hmm, <laughs> that scares me a little bit because I think I know what's right and I think I know what I need, but who am I to tell God what is right for me? Right? Notice the dynamic, right? They demand this king, and even though it's not necessarily for the right motivations, God says, fine, give them what they're demanding. You know, this, to me, is the same theme that we get in the New Testament, in Romans 1, where it says God gave the people up to their depraved desires. 
You know, there, there is a sense that if you pull against the Lord so much, finally, he's free to break the cord and just give you the outcome of what you want. But of course, you know, the people, it doesn't matter. I mean, Saul, uh, Samuel is like constantly warning them. He says, he's going to take your food. He's going to take all this stuff. He's going to tax you a bunch. And he's going to take all this stuff. I mean, this is all verses like 10 through 18. He's warning them and warning them and warning them. They, don't, they should not take a king, right? But part of the dynamic is God may actually give you the desires of your heart. But are the desires of your heart in line with the word? So what are we supposed to take away from this story? Right? What, what's the point? Well, they do get what they want. They get a king, and they get a king just like all the other nations. You know, he's tall, he's handsome, he's young, he's wealthy, uh, he's pragmatic. You know, he solves problems man's way instead of the Lord's way. Um, he's also a little cowardly, Saul is. You know, even on Inauguration Day, it's really funny. On Inauguration Day, Samuel calls all the people and he's like, and now the tribe of Benjamin and the house of Kish, where is our new king? Where, where, where's Saul? And no one can find Saul. And then the Lord goes, he's hiding, in the, he's hiding in the baggage. And Saul's like hiding out. And they have to drag Saul out. And Samuel's like, here's your king. <laughs> but he's tall and he's handsome and he's wealthy and he's pragmatic. He's everything we would want, humanly speaking, Right? The Lord gives them what they want, but it doesn't turn out for their good. So what are we supposed to take away from that? Um, I think the main thing I would say is, Christian, um, one of the ways we know that we are right with the Lord is we heed the Lord's warnings. You know, what were the people supposed to do? They were supposed to heed the warnings. If God says, don't veer off the path, don't do this. I'm sending you Samuel to say, don't veer off the path. Christians heed the warnings. Right? That's one of the things that proves that the Spirit is in us. You know, Hebrews uh, has you know, one of those verses that I, I constantly go back to. Uh, Hebrews 3, it says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. If you hear his voice today, do not harden your hearts. Christians heed the warnings of Scripture. When God says, er, 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 alert, don't go down there, one of the marks of believers, we say, why would I want to go down that path? You know, I don't want to just solve my problems in my own strength. I don't want to argue my way through life. The Lord fights my battles. Of course, you know, as I just maybe finish up, you know, this story um, I don't think it should be lost on us, right, that the people are presented with this, like, pretty obvious choice, right? God sends a messenger, and he says, you're demanding a king, but I'm telling you, don't go down this path, right? Samuel says, okay, the Lord's going to give you what you want. You can demand it. He'll give it to you, but your heart's not right. I mean, does that, does that remind you of anything eerily similar when people were given a choice to choose between a person who is innocent and a person who is guilty. And the person was the king. And again, they got it wrong. If you go into the New Testament, we are presented with a king who doesn't rely on his own wisdom. He has come to do the will of the Father. In fact, he and the Father are one. And even on the night when he was betrayed, he prayed, not my will, but your will be done. 
He was, he was a king who was found, who didn't hide in the baggage, who didn't shirk his responsibilities and never took a bribe. In fact, he gave his life as the ransom for us. And you know, of course, Pilate comes to the people and he says, choose, choose the one you want to set free. Behold your king, Jesus, or, you know, this horrible criminal. And what do the people cry? Crucify him. And once again, they choose wrong. And yet, because God is good, he uses their evil choice to crucify the Son of God, to redeem this broken world, so that we would have a heart that is responsive to the Spirit, and we would know who the true King is. Uh, friends, you know, and I know you know, how to live in chaotic times. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And Father, we pray that we would learn everything that we are supposed to learn from 1 Samuel. And Father, would you give us by your spirit hearts of flesh and not hard hearts. Lord, for those who need to heed the warnings, would they hear them? Lord, for those who need to dis disciple their children, would they teach them the gospel of Jesus? And Lord, would we want more and more to be a place that is responsive to your spirit? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.